Welcome back to the Dissolve Podcast, episode 32, Ecstatic Truth Just Means Lie edition. I'm your host, Tasha Robinson, senior editor at the Dissolve. This week, the recent box office failures of so many quote-unquote pure science fiction films has us thinking about what the genre looks like right now and why it seems to be such a hard sell with American viewers. Then, Nolan Scott come back from the True False Festival with some thoughts on the state of documentary film and the shifting boundaries between truth-telling and storytelling in movies. Our game this week is full of spoilers that may go by so quickly you miss them, and then we wrap with our competitive recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned. The recent box office troubles of the Wachowskis' Jupiter Ascending, Neil Blomkamp's Chappie, and even critically praised films like 2014's Edge of Tomorrow suggest that science fiction is having some problems finding an audience in mainstream cinema these days. While superhero films, animated genre films, and fantasy are all still box office business, for some reason science fiction has seemed like a harder sell lately, whether it's in blockbuster form or in smaller indies. Some of that may just be marketing. It's hard to figure out how to sell movies that are about ideas first. And part of it is perceptual. Much as the mainstream book genre tends to embrace any science fiction or fantasy books that find a wide audience, we may look at science fiction films that do well and say, well, okay, yeah, but that's a superhero movie. Is there more to the issue than pigeonholing and troubled trailers? Here to discuss are Laser Age columnist Keith Phipps. Hello. And our special guest, Smithsonian Air and Space Magazine editor, periodic Dissolve writer, and freelancer just about everywhere, Chris Kleinbeck. Hi, Chris. Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's start with this. Is there anything in particular behind the box office failures of these movies? Is it connected in some way? Does it have to do with the genre? Or is it just a bunch of individual films that aren't doing well? well I haven't seen Jupiter Ascending yet, and, and, and I meant to. Um, so actually, you're the problem. I am the problem. Well, actually, was 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 filled by, by illness in the lobby on my way to see <laughs> Jupiter Ascending. So I really did try to see it. Um, that's how I ended up reviewing it, right? Because yes. you were... Uh, I, you had a scanner's sort of head explosion. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I liken it to the opening scene to the stand, but uh, but I mean, with with Chappie, I think it may be a matter of uh, it's it, okay. Chappie is actually a good case because it's not a good movie, and I can see that being the problem. But also, it's sort of bafflingly marketed. That film, it's kind of a hard to. Um, it's sort of hard to package that film. And, and I, the, all the trailers, I, I'm not the first to point this out, but all the trailers seem to be selling a different movie. Uh, but I, to me, I, the one that, that actually makes your case is Edge of Tomorrow, which is really entertaining, has, really exciting, has a pretty easy to summarize hook, and yet still people didn't go see it, or not enough people went to go see it for it to be considered a success. Yeah, well, I, I of course, loved Edge of Tomorrow. Um you know, we're all friends with Linda Holmes, who we know is not a, a huge sci-fi fan, and she loved that movie too, which I think just just indicates how, you know, how much appeal that had beyond whatever the the sort of stock audience for for sci-fi pictures is. I think in that case, um, there may have been a little Tom Cruise fatigue happening in the fact that there was another uh, very very similar looking picture called Oblivion that had come out, I, I think only a year before. It um, wasn't nearly as good, but um, you know the the memory of that was probably still pretty fresh in the culture when Edge of Tomorrow came out. Um, but yeah, that was that was a big bummer because that that was certainly one of the the three or four best films of the summer. I thought Oblivion also didn't do all that well, though. It doesn't seem like that was the film that that sucked all of the air out of the room for science fiction so much as you know even even that one didn't really pick up. And uh, RoboCop uh, underperformed considerably. Uh, Interstellar did okay, but certainly underperforming. F- yeah, from where well, people and that were one's expecting. kind of the. 
Interstellar is kind of the the heartbreaker for me because while well, certainly allow that that film had plenty of flaws, it also had plenty of ambition. Visually, it was astonishing, and it, and it was really indicative of the the sort of big idea, you know, advancement of the species kind of sci-fi that is always a little bit difficult to get over with the the general public, I think. But it was you know certainly in the in the two thousand one a space odyssey vein. And, um, you know, although, I mean, that, of course, wasn't wasn't initially a huge success either. That took a, a long time to ascend to the status of a, of a classic. I mean, looking back on the last few years, it seems like the only science fiction movie that's done really well that, that didn't have any sort of tie into a franchise or an established genre like uh, Young Adult or... Uh, or against superhero movies, um, was Lucy, which actually did really surprisingly well on a $40 million budget. It's it's made more than $458 million worldwide. I mean, it did more than $125 million in the U.S. alone. And we're seeing a lot. It, it's interesting looking at the breakdowns. You know, a lot of movies are making a lot more money overseas than they are domestically these days. But with a lot of these science fiction movies, it kind of seems like domestically they're just not going over at all. And then worldwide, they're getting the exact same kind of attention as a Lord of the Rings movie or a, uh, a superhero movie. It seems like foreign audiences aren't discriminating as much uh, between one kind of special effects driven action blockbuster and another. American audiences uh, just don't seem to be picking up on that. And I'm, I'm curious whether you think there's anything in particular that would keep American audiences away from these films. You know, in some ways... I don't know. I, again, I, I hate to go back to the harp on this point, but I, in some ways, it's marketing. You know, Edge of Tomorrow maybe maybe wasn't packaged in a way that 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 um, you know set it enough apart from Oblivion, as you said, or, or set it you know explained what it was or how entertaining it was. Whereas Lucy, you know, that had a, sort of a trailer and 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 a marketing campaign that made it pretty clear it was going to be uh, two hours of Scarlett, Scarlett Johansson kicking ass with a uh, <laughs> with a sci-fi twist, uh, and people showed up for that. It might. It might just be that, but I mean, they're tough things to, to sell. And, and also, you, you know, it's, it's a matter of, of choosing what elements to emphasize. Like if you were to emphasize that at some point Lucy goes back to the beginning of the human species, uh, perhaps that would have uh, put off more people than it attracted. Yeah, that would have made me angry because that was why, I mean, I think Lucy is a very silly movie, but I but I enjoyed it. And, you know, no small part because I was not expecting it to turn into you know the matrix at the end or you know or 2001 or I, I i was not expecting lucy to become some kind of you know dissipated sentient consciousness that's no longer confined to a, a body or to any fixed location in time and space um so that was a you know that was a neat surprise in the last 10 minutes of a luke besson action movie that i thought was going to be more like la femme Nikita or something a tough thing about that one is that that comes out just a few months after under the skin um which i think is a, a perfect example of what we're talking about and under the skin was not successful domestically or internationally i think even looking at its worldwide gross it's made back less than half of its 13 million dollar budget um, and that was my favorite film of 2014 in any genre. You know, I think that one really, really harkens back to uh, the era of sci-fi that Keith writes about. It, uh, um, the Man Who Fell to Earth is the, the Nicholas Rogue movie is probably the, the single one that I thought of and that I've, I've, you know, I've heard it compared to a lot. Um, but that's a film that demands a whole, whole lot of its audience. I'm not surprised that the distributor didn't know how to sell it. But, um, you know, it, it ought to be able to make $13 million dollars. 
Yeah, it, I mean, it seems like with Under the Skin and Coherence and Europa Report, like the past couple of years have been a, actually a really good time to be fans of science fiction films in America. You, you know, you have like the big blockbuster special effects driven movies. You have the little smart indies. Um, Alex Garland's directorial debut, Ex Machina, is about to come out. And I really liked that film a lot. It's very stylish. It's very cerebral. It's very thoughtful. It's got kind of a Gattaca feel. Uh, he wrote Sunshine. And I think people who really loved the first half of Sunshine and, and didn't understand why the second half had to go in the direction that it went are probably going to enjoy this film a lot. So there's a lot going on in theaters. Uh, it's just it's a good time to be a science fiction fan by yourself in the theater. It's not a great time to be a science fiction fan with a huge crowd. So let me ask you guys this. As as fans of the genre, what do you want to see in a science fiction movie in, in the 2000s? Like, what could the next couple of decades offer you uh, in cinema that you'd be interested in? Well, uh, you know, I'd like to see another dozen movies like Looper, um, mm. uh, Ryan Johnson's sci-fi picture from 2012. Um, you know, is it a good thing or a bad thing that he is working for Lucasfilm now? Well, I'm, I'm certainly excited to see his Star Wars movie, but... Um, you know, that, that's a perfect example of the thing that we say that we all want. It's an original concept. It's not based on any pre-existing property. Clearly, the, the specific vision of one writer-director, well-executed, and it made money. Um, I mean, it made money because he was able to, you know, keep the budget to, to $30 million, um, which is easier to do when you're, you know, when it's, it's the ideas and the, the conceptual underpinnings that provide the, the sci-fi more than, say, the, uh, the sci-fi of, of Guardians of the Galaxy, a huge hit, right? But I mean, that's, that's very much in the space opera kind of swashbuckling Star Wars side of, of science fiction. I don't know. Short answer: I, I want more, more loopers and more, more Ryan Johnsons. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see that too, and I'd love to see sort of a, a case where um, a rising, rising tide lifts all ships. Where, where Guardians of the Galaxy was incredibly successful, and, and is, as at heart, as you say, a space opera. Um, I think people will probably go see this. Is it Star Star Wars? Star Wars mm-hmm. is that the movie uh, coming is that out? What that's called? Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I mean, the last you know, I don't know if we'll ever have a thing like we had in the late seventies where. You know, Star Wars was an unexpectedly huge hit, and suddenly everything science fiction was getting a green light. So it's led to all kinds of, you know, diverse projects from from Alien to Star Trek: The Motion Picture, which which was sort of uh, looming for a while, and then wouldn't have happened without Star Wars. Not that it's a great movie, but you get my point. That it sort of uh, opened the door for a lot of different things. I'd love to see. There's sort of a problem now with sort of you know the the, the mid budget film kind of disappearing, and that would be a good area for for a certain amount of ambitious but you know cheaply executable. Um, um, science fiction films to occupy it. but in the meantime maybe we'll see a little you know a little more of interest on, on both ends well I mean if you look at something like uh, Duncan Jones Moon you can have a like a sense much like with westerns I think some science fiction films are trying to do a little more uh, throwback you know a drawing on like older versions of the genre as experiments or as like ways to bring new textures. It's it's funny that we can so often reach back to the past to find what seems like a new texture these days because so many films are the same. So many of these uh, science fiction films kind of have a special effects driven like blockbuster sheen even if they're not really blockbusterish in content so i mean for me it's it's actually a relief to see films like chronicle which are trying to do something a little bit new with uh sort of existing languages but it's even more interesting to see films like uh, ex machina feels more than a little like a 70s like a cerebral 70s science fiction film so 
I mean, for me, it's just, it's kind of about diversity. It's, it's kind of about uh, <laughs> all of these people diversifying their stock portfolio and realizing that, you know, you can, you can have an interstellar on one end, but it really helps to have a super, super cheap science fiction film on the other end uh, that is maybe a little more ideas driven. I mean, I, I think uh, coherence cost about $12, um, but it, you know, it, it looks good. It looks good and it's got some ideas and it, it does some interesting things with them. So, I mean, I'm well, that, that's something, you know, a lot of the, the sci-fi pictures of a, a generation ago that, that we all hold up as classics now. I mean, they had that sense of parsimony about them. I mean, RoboCop was, I think, you know, $13 million or something in 1987. It looks like it cost a lot more. Aliens was, I think, $19 million in 1986. But, uh, you know, it looks like a, a much more lavish production than it was. And th that seems like something that sci-fi has always had to kind of do. That Having a blank check has never or rarely been to the, the benefit of the films. Although even with a, with a non-blank check, special effects are getting more sophisticated and cheaper. I'm a little curious for both of you as, again, as buffs, uh, science fiction films are, are doing more and more sophisticated things with less and less money. At the same time, you kind of have, like the Wachowskis are, are still trying to create new kinds of of visuals with the effects that they have. Can you remember the last time you saw something uh, that was a science fiction film that was actually like image driven or effects driven that actually excited you? I mean, I would actually maybe I'm just because we re mentioned it recently, but Looper, some of the some of the effects in that are, are not expensive, but also um, stunning looking and, and something I had not seen before. Um, I'm finding a lot of sort of the big special effects uh, blockbusters to look a little samey. I mean, just, just sort of this total immersion in CGI. You can do anything you want to has not necessarily um, opened up the, the gates of creativity for a lot of filmmakers. So um, I, I think kind of just uh, you know, to, to, to tag off of what Chris was saying, uh, a little bit more, uh, a few more limitations might actually lead to some, some interesting solutions. Yeah, I, I feel like on, on both ends of the, the price spectrum, there, there have been some, some visually arresting things in, in the last year or so. Unfortunately, both in, in films that, I, that I've mentioned already, one of the nice things that I got to do in my day job uh, back in November was I, I got to have a long talk with Kip Thorne, the theoretical physicist who Interstellar had on the payroll over a period of years, who worked very closely with, with Jonathan Nolan on the screenplay, um, but who also advised, uh, I think Double Negative is the name of the visual effects house, on, on how to visualize these black holes and gave them all kinds of calculations and data, you know, saying this is science's best guess as to what these things actually look like. And there were a lot of long tableaus in, in, in that movie uh, that I thought were just jaw-dropping, but also uh, Under the Skin, I think, is, is very, uh, very rich visually. And that's, you know, a movie that, that cost almost nothing. The imagery in that film is not really stuff that, you know, you, you'd file under, under sci-fi. It's, it's more, you know, sort of a, a misty beach scene with Scarlett Johansson walking along, or there, there's a, a pyre in the middle of the forest. And, you know, nothing about that is... Uh, robots and aliens and laser guns, but um, it's it's still very very powerful and sensual and visual. Well, I think it's important to remember that that uh, if you you know you look at the the most successful films of 2014 financially behind American Sniper, we have Guardians of the Galaxy, of course a Marvel Comics adaptation, but those Marvel Comics were arguably you know, emulating the Star Wars that had emulated Marvel Comics in the 70s, so there, there is this, this sort of feedback loop happening, but I think it's certainly still science fiction. And also the, the Hunger Games franchise. I think Mockingjay was the number two or number three of the year, and, um, you know, that, that's a very robust genre of, of 
sci-fi, whether whether it's you know intended in literary form for for younger readers or not, the the dystopian future that's you know supposed to impart observations about our our present, um, you know, but does it about a you know a fantasy world to seem less didactic? So I think you can certainly make the case that that Guardians and and Hunger Games and a lot of other things that are smack in the center of the culture now are are all some strain or another of science fiction. Yeah, and, and I think also that that kind of thing sort of uh, stokes the appetite for more uh, within the genre, e- even if it's not, you know, even if most people just want to see Guardians of the Galaxy 2, there'll be some people who are, are at least uh, turned back on to other elements of the genre. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the top 20 films of last year, a lot of them are borderline cases that you can certainly adopt into science fiction. I One of the things that interests me is just this feeling that anything with crossover that, that has a genre crossover element to it, like Guardians of the Galaxy, which I see as more a superhero film, you know, being part of the uh, the big Marvel continuum, or The Hunger Games, which is part of the YA uh, adaptation leap, or the Lego movie, which is kind of a Chris Miller, uh, Phil Lord slash, uh, you know, animated film, um, and just has a bunch of other things going for it. Transformers Age of Extinction, you know, being part of a, a venerable franchise and a Michael Bay film. All of these films have potential science fiction elements. It's just the, you know, maybe I'm just holding out too much uh, emphasis on, on purity. Uh, the, the pure science fiction movie is, is having a harder time. But then again, anything that's purely any one genre is probably having a hard time these days. So maybe that explains it all. I mean, this might be the, the maturation of cinematic sci-fi where there are so many subgenres of it now. You know, it's just, just splintered into uh, a bunch of other things. And, you know, again, Guardians of the Galaxy does not resemble Under the Skin very much, but uh, they certainly both have their, their merits. And the audiences for them at least in my case, overlap. I don't think you're alone there. Definitely. I don't think I don't think no. you're alone either. I think we're I think we're all fans of all of these films. But I, for one, am really looking forward to The Martian and uh, to having mainstream America finally accept the idea of potato farming in space and the importance thereof. So uh, we we have a special issue coming out, Tasha. You'll be very pleased. <laughs> Good. I'm really the the root vegetable uh, extravaganza. Uh, Chris, tell tell people where they can find that and where they can find more of your work in general. Smithsonian Air and Space is online at airspacemag.com. Um, I hope to be seeing more of me on the, the Dissolve soon. I write for NPR sometimes. Uh, please follow me on Twitter. It's at C-T-K-L-I-M as in Michael E-K. And obviously you can find me and Keith here at the Dissolve. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. A lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks, we'll Chris. to talk to you soon. Every year since 2004, Columbia, Missouri's perpetually expanding True-False Film Festival has attempted to lay out the best of new nonfiction films while questioning the idea of objective truth in filmmaking. Over the past decade, it's also provided an overview of the changing documentary scene as digital filmmaking, smaller cameras, alternate distribution methods, and platforms like Netflix and other streaming sites have made IndieDocs a little more technically and economically viable around a nearly infinite variety of subjects. This year, Scott Tobias and Noel Murray both attended, with Scott turning in his true-false report on specific films he saw last week. But for the podcast, we wanted to get away from individual films a little and look a little more deeply at the festival itself and what it tells us about the state of documentary filmmaking right now. 
now. Here to talk to the confessional camera about how they're feeling right at this moment are... Uh, Scott Tobias. And... Noel Murray. So guys, uh, True False's stated mission has been to question and explore the boundaries of nonfiction filmmaking and to explore what objectivity means in a medium where people are creating narrative out of real events. How do you see the festival pursuing its missions? Well, it's funny. I mean, I actually, I'll start with a little anecdote. I, uh, I, one of the things about True False is that there's kind of a, a mingling of, uh, of sorts between uh, critics and, and filmmakers. And I happen to do most of my mingling on the shuttle ride from uh, home from uh, from Columbia to St. Louis, in which I was in uh, a shuttle with the co-director of a movie called These Birds Walk, which I which is a film I really loved from a couple years ago, and the uh, co-director of a film called Almost There that was in this year's festival uh, from a guy who also edited the the Interrupters. Um, and uh, one of the things that, that that we talked about was the fact that True False as a festival has really influenced people's thinking about how they go about making movies, which is interesting. I mean, that the, the, the festival has really um, helped sh- not only feature, but also shape uh, the development of documentaries as a form. And, and what, what it's done, I think, is move it toward a more, uh, you know, cinematic the documentaries are more cinematic. They're a little more ambiguous in terms of in terms of uh, fiction and nonfiction. They they sort of embrace this idea that Warner Herzog called ecstatic truth. You know, which is which is you know which is maybe another word for lie. <laughs> I always like I always like ecstatic truth is like yeah, another word for that is probably lie. But but uh, <laughs> but that but that is about you know I think rejecting this idea of of uh, of the camera is a fly on the wall as being able to tell you the truth, uh, the objective truth. I mean, it's, 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 it's about kind of blurring those lines, but in a way that's very uh, productive and, and kind of uh, creatively liberating, I would mm. say. I mean, you still see documentaries that use the, uh, the classic documentary techniques. You still see talking heads. You still see on-screen text. I mean, it's not all, um, you know, straight, Wiseman style verite. I mean, they try to kind of blend and combine the old techniques with the new techniques. Um, but I mean, it's interesting your, your anecdote, Scott, because what, what struck me about True False this year, even more than last year when I went, is how many alumni return for this, even when they don't have a movie there. I mean, yeah. you know, you saw people like like uh, the director of the Overnighters, Jesse Moss, didn't have a film at the festival this year. He was there anyway. Um, you know, it, you, you see a lot of that. So it's very interesting to hear them say that they're actually kind of looking looking to the festival as a, as an inspiration as well as a way of showing their work. Well, they ha- also have something called like a Swami program. That's what uh, uh, Steve James uh, was there for that, that people kind of go in and, they're, they're in workshop uh, documentaries, give advice to first-time filmmakers. And uh, so, so there is definitely a sense of True False as kind of a meeting place for people who are, you know, operating in, in nonfiction. And also, you know, I think some oftentimes looking for, for financing, looking for opportunities, and and uh, you know, looking for uh, ways to collaborate. Um, you know, I didn't know. Uh, the, in fact, that the the person who I was talking to, who who co-directed the movie, almost there, is is going to work on Jesse as editor on Jesse Moss's next film. So, uh, um, I, you know, certainly, I'm sure they were talking about that. So, it's an interesting place. I mean, it's it's a place where every single. Uh, uh, film uh, director shows up for their movie, which is, you know, Columbia is not, you know, New York. This may be splitting hairs, but I'm a little curious whether you're implying that 
people are seeing so many docs in this mold that they feel, you know, freer to follow a, a like a looser, more ecstatic truth model, or if they're seeing that as the trend, so they're, they're following the trend, or, it, it, you know, if that's what's financially successful right now, like w- which, which one of these? I think it's a half, I think it's, you know, I mean, you know, those are like a glass, a glass half full or glass half mm-hmm. empty perspective. I mean, I like to, to think of it's it's more of a glass half full situation. Um, and a lot of that, I think, is technological because, um, you know, for, for one, you, you know, these digital cameras, uh, I think, have done more to shape, docu- you know, independent documentary filmmaking than it has any other type of filmmaking in the sense that um, you can shoot a film for very little to no money and make it look amazing. Um, and you can also... Um, you can keep the cameras rolling infinitely. You can keep the cameras rolling infinitely. And the other thing too, that which which was a big trend at this festival, is that the cameras are, are very small and the, and you can kind of do these sort of ride-along docs where you, where you, where you're, you really uh, don't need much of a crew and you can have a really small camera and you can get yourself into situ- into very into situations that in the past would have been impossible because because it would require too many people uh, I think the best example we saw of that Noel would be cartel land don't you think yeah absolutely I mean I mean that film is astonishing with what it's able to capture on two sides of the border both in this uh, this uh, uh, militia in I think it's Arizona Scott is that right uh, yeah yeah, the, the, there's a, 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 a citizens' militia in, in a border town in Arizona. On the other side, in Mexico, it's a whole movement of people who were trying to drive out the drug cartels. Um, and the story develops over the course of, uh, of several months, um, you know, showing what happens on both sides. But you know, what's striking about it is what they're able to capture with these cameras. And they have, they have literally they're in the middle of gunfights right. at various points, um, or they're riding along with people as they're as they're capturing people crossing the border. Um, I mean, it's footage that it's almost like the people who are being filmed have totally forgotten there's anybody else there because the cameras are so small and they're not cumbersome and they're not in the way of what is actually an action sequence in the middle of these documentaries. Um, yeah, but and but even with that, I think I mean that what what was striking about Cartel and you're talking about trends. One of the main trends that I saw this year wasn't just the embed ride along stuff, but these stories that are being told as they happen. Yeah, and you know, I think I think I think you know, a, a more common documentary model is something has just happened, and now our cameras are here, and we're interviewing people who are reflecting and looking back and talking about what just happened. And I saw a lot of movies this year where the cameras happened to be there for some reason or another, and who knows even why they showed up in the first place. Um, and they capture a story as it begins and follow through it for months, years, you know, years in, in some cases, Scott, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there was a, uh, one of my favorites from this year's festival is a film called terror, uh, that again, you know, is another kind of embed documentary, but that follows, uh, follows a guy who works as an FBI informant whose job it is to sort of to, you know, is to be part of this, you know, FBI operation to, um, stop, terror you know domestic terrorism before it happens and so they're with this guy as he as he's departing to pittsburgh uh to, to set up this operation this the sting operation and they're there all the way through the conclusion they 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 involve themselves in a very interesting way it's it's full of exciting revelations and it you know one of the things that um i, I comment on in the piece um that i really liked about a lot of the films at this festival is that um is that a lot of these films are activist 
documentaries, but they're not, as you say, you know, they're not looking back on stuff that's happening there. There's an immediacy to them. Um, uh, you know, I mean, you could, you could look at a movie called, you could make a, a version of terror that would be like, you know, a, a broad kind of shocking overview of, of, of our, um, botched attempt to, um, deal with the, the potential problem of domestic terrorism post nine 11. But, um, but to actually be see a case in action, that's a whole nother matter. And I think it's much more enraging and much more engaging uh, for an audience to be a part of that. I mean, do you feel like there's a a push, I guess, these days with, I, like, I, I sort of trace it back to the the embedded reporter trend. It, it seems like just more and more of these docs are just about, we're going to come along and do what you do, and we're going to wear cameras and, and record sort of what's going on around us. Do you think there's more acceptance for that kind of thing? Uh, just in terms of like where cameras are allowed to go, especially now that they're less, less difficult to get. Into yeah. Places? I mean, I, they're just simply not in, less intrusive. I mean, the other, another example from a few years ago is that movie Restrepo, uh, which, mm-hmm. which follow, which kind of it was embedded with, um, you know, out in the middle of uh, a very, uh, you know, uh, dangerous, uh, area mountain region in Afghanistan. Um, so, and I think it's just a, you know, and it's interesting to think about it too, with, with cartel land in Restrepo, um, you know, the moment there's a moment in, uh, in Harlan County, USA, in which, in which, you know, uh, the cameras are present in the middle of gunfire. And now it's just, it's de rigueur, you know, now it's like, <laughs> now, now there's just bullets flying everywhere. These things, uh, um, it's exciting. It's exciting to watch. And, and, and I think, you know, and also, um, you know, to, to get back to, to true false, I mean, there's just so many different ways you can kind of like, um, you know, express yourself in that in non- nonfiction form. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's, there, you know, there, there I saw some avant-garde, uh, documentaries that really, that really played with form, um, you know, that captured a kind of reality without, without, um, having to, without, you know, conforming to what I think, we assume documentaries to be, you know, the form that we assume documentaries to be, or may have assumed them to be in the past. Um, you know, I think once, you know, I, I, th- I don't think a festival like true false sees that the, the, the blurring lines between fiction and nonfiction as problematic. Exactly. Um, I think it sees, sees it as a, as, as a liberating thing. It's something that is, um, freeing and, and, um, you know, I saw, I saw, you know, this, it just leads to a greater diversity of films and a lot more exciting cinematic films. Yeah, what's fascinating to me as somebody who's interested in documentaries as much as for being for being journalism as much as for being cinema is uh, going to the Q and A's after some of these films and hearing the filmmakers talk about. Uh, you know, they still have to worry about the legalities. I mean, they, you know, just because you have a tiny camera that you can take anywhere doesn't mean that you don't have to get releases signed when you happen to capture someone's face on camera as you're walking through a city, as it may happen to be. So, I mean, it, these hybrids are very interesting because you do still have to think about, um, you know, what you're representing and whether you could possibly be sued by, by what you showed. And that's why I was surprised by things like terror, mm-hmm. um, that they were actually able to get this film not just made, but, but shown, given that it actually documents an actual undercover FBI investigation. One would, one would think that would not be legal. Yeah, they're, not, they're, definitely, they're definitely not supposed to be there. And um, 
you know, they're they're engaged. I mean, they're they're not. It's not a passive documentary at all. Um, and uh, it, it, you know, there's there's some involvement there. And I, and I think, you know, that the the case in which um, th- you know that film covers is um, open for you know to be for continued exploration. Scott, you have expressed a lot of ire recently with documentaries that end with a URL yes. or learn more <laughs> about it or here's how to help. No, I'm, I'm pretty curious what your take on that is since I've heard so much about Scott about it, but then I'd like to talk about sort of where where would you like to see docs go instead of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm with Scott by and large. I mean, I find that the, uh, uh, you know, the activist documentaries, it's easy to give them a pass if they are expressing a point of view that you happen to agree with. But, you know, in some ways, I think I, I tend to be a little bit more, tend to scrutinize more carefully these movies that actually are on my side because I want them to make the best case they possibly can, if they're making a case, if they're activist documentaries and they're making a case. In which case, I want them to, to air the opposite point of view if, if they're doing that so that they can actually make the, make the other side's argument and respond to it in, in a way that's intelligent. And I find that most of those films don't do that. They just kind of set up straw men, knock them down easily, um, and then leave us with leave us with a list of what can we do next at the end. And I, you know, I, I don't. That's, that's a pamphlet to me. That's not a documentary. Um, so I, I, I agree with Scott that I like these films that actually uh, take you inside of a situation by showing you by telling you a story and showing you what's actually happening, um, and then letting you kind of uh, extrapolate from that. Because it is very clear that these documentaries we saw at True False have a point of view, um, but they're not always just telling you exactly what the point of view is. I'll, I'll give you another case in point. Um, uh, Nick Broomfield's new film, uh, Tales of the Grim Sleeper, which is about a serial killer who operated for decades in South Central Los Angeles in a crime-ridden community where, you know, the police kind of looked at a, a dead body as a dead body, not as you know evidence of some psychopath out there on the streets. And Broomfield, you know, goes through these streets and talks to people who were actually there, who knew the guy who's who's been arrested for the crime, who knew the victims. Um, and he doesn't actually expressly say at any point, isn't this a shame, or doesn't, doesn't end the film by saying, hashtag Black Lives Matter. But it's extraordinarily clear that that's the, that's the point of the film, just by talking to people and letting them tell their stories. Uh, that, makes, that makes it a much more impactful um, uh, message. Uh, no, I, I mean, obviously, I completely agree with Noel. And I, I just think as, as an audience member, it's, it's much more engaging. I don't, I don't like this idea of... Um, you know, I think you know docu- the documentaries I mentioned mentioned in the piece as examples of activist documentaries uh, that were not at the festival. Uh, the Hunting Ground by Kirby Dick, which is about rape on college campuses, uh, and Merchants of Doubt, which is about you know kind of industry financed experts who uh, kind of muddy the debate over climate change and other issues. Um, you know, they have a goal that is the, they have a goal in mind, which is that which is to persuade people to care about whatever a certain cause and to me it's it's a these are these are important goals but but they're not aesthetic goals and i kind of like it when both of those things are in place when when you can make documentaries that 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 really delve into you know say a specific case or something like that and kind of can engage you both um on a cinematic level and uh, on a on a on a social and moral level well, thanks for your thoughts, guys. Um, I'm issuing you your GoPro cameras now so you can go back <laughs> to your jobs and do your work, uh, and we can track this all for the Dissolve documentary. Thanks so much. <laughs> all, right. all right. Thanks, Tasha. Okay, thanks.
Here at The Dissolve, we're normally as careful as we can be about movie spoilers, either warning people about them ahead of time or banishing them to their own special spoiler pages. But tiptoeing around the internet masses can be difficult, because there's always someone out there who hasn't seen the movie you're talking about yet, or hasn't followed history or the news well enough to know how that particular real-life story ended. So after years of caution and apology, I'm throwing caution to the wind and spoiling all the movies I can with this lightning-fast game I'm calling Spoiler Alert. I'm going to give you a quickie synopsis of how a movie ended, and you're going to tell me what the movie is. Scott Tobias' rule is in effect. You lose a point for a wrong answer, at which point the turn passes to the next person. The game will operate in one-minute rounds, so if you're the one still holding the bag on the round robin and trying to identify a film when 60 seconds are up, you lose two points. Just to throw an extra bit of complexity on it, you can pass twice per round. Just say pass, but after that, you're on the hook for an answer. If you get the answer right, you'll hear this. If you get the answer wrong, you'll hear Scott groan. (laughs) (laughs) All right, are we ready? I can do that live if you want some live groaning. Uh, Are we ready to try spoiling some movies for everyone? Sure. I I assume the statute of limitations has passed on all these spoilers. Possibly some of them haven't, but I think think most people who are familiar with this site are also going to be familiar with these movies. We're about to find out. I would add this to our listeners. It is called Spoiler Alert. You can either skip it um, or you lose your right to complain. Right? Yep, pretty much. Okay, uh, starting with Keith. Rosebud was his sled. Citizen Kane. Original Death Star blows up. Uh, Star Wars. Spock dies saving the Enterprise. Uh, Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. The Enterprise blows up and Spock uh, comes back to life. <laughs> Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Tyler Durden isn't real. Fight Club. It's people, I tell you. It's made of people. Silent Green. Mr. Orange is a cop, probably a dead one. Reservoir Dogs. Bunny Lake is found. Bunny Lake is missing. Jack freezes in the hedge maze. Uh, the Shining. Andy tunnels out of the prison and escapes. Uh, Shawshank Redemption. Dorothy goes back to Kansas. Wizard of Oz. The head of David Mills' wife is in the box. <laughs> uh, seven. God melts all the Nazis for being impertinent. Raiders of the Lost Ark. The good version of the robot from the future chooses to melt himself. <laughs> Ooh, all right. That's a that's a close uh, a close call and a judgment call. Technically, Nathan should lose two points, but I, since I was still asking the question, uh, I'm going to say I lose two points, um, and we're going to go into round two. Uh, what is our score, scorekeeper Genevieve? Uh, we've got Keith at five and Scott and Nathan at four. Not because anybody missed any, uh, but because Keith got an extra round. So we're back to Nathan at the top of the round. All right. Nathan, good version of the robot from the future chooses to melt himself. Terminator 2. Norma Desmond heads to prison or the madhouse. Norma Desmond. Norma Desmond. <laughs> uh, that would be um, uh, Sunset Boulevard? The Germans marry off Char- Charlie and Rose, and then their ship blows up. What? Uh, oh, pass. <laughs> Nathan, the Germans marry Rose and Charlie, and then their ship blows up. Um, I'm going to say you boat. Uh, uh, no, that, that, that's boot. Ugh. That's boot is a movie. Scott, do you have it? Both with the, 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 okay. Scott, uh, Germans marry Char- Charlie and Rose and their ship blows up. A Titanic? <laughs> uh, African Queen. Ugh. All right, Keith. Uh. Oops. All right, Keith eventually had it. Uh, Norman Bates is the actual crazy one. Uh, psycho. Judge Doom is a scheming tune. Okay, so that was round two. Uh, once again, I was in the middle of asking the question. Maybe the catchphrase rule isn't going to work as well as we thought, but you try something new, you learn something new. Uh, we've got Keith at six, Scott at four, and Nathan is f- at five. Uh. <laughs> That's with everybody losing a point on African. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was remarkable. Here, yeah. Scott. I, I, do uh. a, I do an uncanny impression of myself. Uh. <laughs> All right, uh, round three. Ready to go? Scott, Judge Doom is a scheming tune. Judge Doom? Yes. Ding. 
time is time is ticking. Oh, wait, Judge Doom. That's not the name of the no. movie. <laughs> Judge Doom is escaping to Keith. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Yes. Everybody joined in in committing the murder. Oh, God. Abby the Christie's Dendlandia. Uh, Everybody joined in in committing the murder, Scott. I'll pass. Murder on the Orient Express. <laughs> Once again, hey, pre-ding for, for on, Keith. Uh, Agatha Christie's Dendlandia. Uh, no, ben right. and Elaine ditch her wedding and run off together. Uh, oh, uh, and The Graduate. Leonard chooses not to remember how his wife really died. Memento. Terry gets beaten half to death, but the doc rallies rally behind him till he's allowed to work. Oh, uh, on the waterfront. After looking to his heart, damn it, that's three in a row. Uh, and, and to finish a thought, no, it's based on Murder on the Orient Express. Okay. All right, we've got Keith at nine, Scott at four, and Nathan at five. Spoiler alert, I think Keith is going to walk off with this one. Uh, let's do a final round. We, we've, only had, uh, we've only had two passes, so uh, Nathan's still sitting on his, and we've got uh, Keith and Scott still ready to go. Um, let's give this a shot. We were on Nathan again. All right. After looking to his heart a second time, Tom shoots Bernie to death. Oh, God. And I'm really crossing. Scott, Sam Lowry has a pleasant daydream. Pass. Brazil. Uh, Nathan, Mookie gets pissed and hucks a trash can. Uh, that would be the movie uh, Third Thing. <laughs> uh, Laszlo and Ilsa leave on the plane together. Uh, Casablanca. Jason's mother was a killer all along. Friday the 13th, part one. Donnie has to choose to die to protect the timeline. Donnie Darko. George gets Zuzu's pedals back and an angel gets his wings. A pass. It's a wonderful life. <laughs> Phoebe puts on Eve's costume and the cycle begins anew. Uh, that'd be all about Eve. The bird statue's a fake and Sam refuses to play the sap. Uh, the Maltese Falcon. Under the wire. Okay. Oh. We have spoiled a lot of films. How are we doing? <laughs> All right. We've got Keith at 12, Scott at 6, and Nathan at 9. Uh, we want to do a final round. We've still got passes, and we've still got spoilers. Let's do it. Major Kong rides a bomb to glory, and the world blows up. Dr. Strangelove. Dobbs gets shot by bandits, and nobody gets the treasure. Uh, treasure is here in Madre. Carl gets wood chippered, and nobody gets the money. Fargo. Alex DeLarge gets his groove back. Pass. Uh, how still I got her groove back? <laughs> Ugh. Alex DeLarge? Pass. Ooh, that's Clockwork Orange, guys. Uh, Blanche has a nervous breakdown. St- Stanley yells for his wife. That's a streetcar named Desire. Everybody goes and flies a kite, except the nanny who flies away. Uh, Mary Poppins. A wrestling match on Ra- Mount Rushmore ends badly for two people. North by Northwest? <laughs> Mozart dies. Salieri blesses the mediocre. Amadeus. Travis Vick Bickle goes back to work. A taxi driver. Harry and Sally finally end up together. When Harry met Sally? <laughs> Tracy drops George at the altar when he questions her and decides to remarry Dexter instead. Oh, um, Philadelphia story. Very good. Okay, our final tally. Uh, Keith, with a, an unsurprising non-twist ending, uh, wins the game with 15 points. Uh, Scott has 9 and Nathan has 11. That was close, and you guys are fast. Uh, you, you've spoiled a lot of movies for everybody today. You should be ashamed of yourself. I haven't watched any of these films. <laughs> but thanks for participating, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And now, I'd like to spoil our recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell, by telling you in advance who's going to win, except I have no idea, because I don't have any idea what these guys are going to pitch, or whether it's going to involve my husband this week. As always, we have two people given 30 seconds each to pitch a film or film-related item or concept, competitively. 
This week, we've got Keith and Scott back on the docket, and coming back from his resounding win at the game, Keith is going first. You have 30 seconds to sell me on something, Keith. Let's hear it. Well, this is kind of an easy sell. Uh, it's the uh, short film Feast, which won the best Academy uh, Academy Award for Best Animated uh, Short Film. It appears in front of Big Hero 6, which I watched with my daughter again this weekend. And it's both a delightful film and a moving film, but also what I, I like what it represents, which is a lot of attempt to do a lot of new innovative things in animation, kind of combining computer animation with a hand-drawn look, some really uh, interesting uh, editing choices. It just sort of moves along briskly, and it's really sweet and moving, and I delight, uh, delight to watch. And that is all I had to say about feast 30 seconds <laughs> it's got a dog in it uh yeah he gets docked points for leaving out the fact that there's a, a dog in it which it i would have I, I, I didn't mention the dog the dog have no yeah and the, the, the dog eats things well yeah okay well, um, it's extra well i got something tosh i got something i think bob's really gonna like <laughs> <laughs> well that as we all know that's the important thing i don't know all right let's hear it scott Okay, I just returned from the True False Film Festival, and I want to hail the work of Bill and Turner Ross, who had a new film at the festival called Western. Western probably won't be in theaters for some time, so I want to recommend the Ross Brothers' previous documentary, Chopatulis, which is currently available for free on Fandor and for money on other streaming services. What makes them so special is their sense of place and their willingness to defy convention. Uh, Chopatulis was shot over eight months, but it's framed as the story of three boys who wander through New Orleans over one long night. Time fudging doesn't matter because it's such a beautiful evocation of the city. Okay, you both came in under the wire, so there's no easy gimme here. Uh, but I think I'm going to gimme it to Scott. Uh, <gasps> both, I never win. <laughs> both in a payoff for uh, for uh, evoking the the Bob rule, and uh, because I've seen Feast, and uh, as, as cute as it is, and as interesting as the animation is, uh, I'm I'm going to go with a thing that I haven't seen, uh, and which I think you make a really compelling argument for. I, I'm really pretty curious coming out of your True False report about uh, about those filmmakers and about that film in general. So I'm probably a lot more likely. To 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 go seek that out than to rewatch Feast, even though Feast is Feast is only a few minutes, much, much shorter mm-hmm. and uh, much more adorable. I I'm say leaning watch, towards changing my mind. Watch them both. That's <laughs> no, that's not what a competition is. <laughs> Keith gets docked a million points and Scott wins the day. Yes. Congratulations, right. Scott, on your on your beautiful beautiful victory. Thank you. Well, we've reached the end of another Dissolve podcast. As always, we're grateful to you for listening and would be extra grateful if you could take the time to give us a review on iTunes, where the feedback helps boost us to a wider audience. You can find the Dissolve on Tumblr, Twitter, and Facebook, and at thedissolve.com. And you can send questions, comments, topic suggestions, or game ideas to feedback at thedissolve.com. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky, with assistance from Colin Griffith. Now go watch some movies. We'll see you in two weeks. Wait, Judge Doom? That's not the name of the movie.